0: Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll explore how journalists can connect the dots between climate change and local journalism using data as an anchor. For decades, journalists have effectively communicated the global ramifications of climate change, whether it's citing countless scientific studies or covering international negotiations on climate targets at UN summits. But what audiences are clamoring for now more than ever is context. Context on what climate change means for them in their daily lives. The time is now for journalists to show how local communities are impacted through a solutions journalism approach by relying on data and on the ground reporting. To better understand how best to approach this, we caught up with Alex Harris, the lead climate reporter for the Miami Herald's climate team which covers how South Florida communities are adapting to the warming world. And Tamid Zami, who works as a DACA-based climate journalist in Bangladesh at Thomson Reuters Foundation. His reports concentrate on the theme of the linkage between climate transition and a decent life of the community. The pair offer insights into what works for their local communities, how they tackle news avoidance on climate issues, and their go-to data sources for bolstering their climate stories. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Alex Harris and Tamid Zami now. I thought it would be helpful if maybe we could go around and introduce ourselves and just briefly, you know, explain our beats and locations. Sure, so my name is Alex Harris. I cover
1: climate change for the Miami Herald. Um, we now have a three-person team. That's a new development. But I have been writing about uh, how climate change affects us at the local level for going on eight years now, and uh, spend a lot of time trying to make the people of Miami understand the issues that we're facing.
2: Uh, hi Tara, this is Tahmid Zami. I am from Bang- Dhaka, Bangladesh, and I am working as a Just Transition reporter for Thomson Writers Foundation. So, as you may, as everybody may know, that Just Transition is about uh, showing the linkage between climate, climate transition and how it is actually impacting the communities, including, for example, labor. So basically, I've been uh, reporting for more than one and a half year on how uh, the climate transition in Bangladesh, how it is actually impacting workers, ordinary communities, and people, including, for example, gender minorities, women, and so on. So that's uh, my uh, journey with Thomson Reuters Foundation as a Just Transition reporter. And before that, I have been working as a researcher in basically areas like green growth, private sector development, and so on.
0: Marvelous. Well, thank you all for, for your introductions. Um, Alex, I wonder if we could start with you. Um, you know, Miami is known for hurricanes, and that's one of your specialties as a climate change reporter for the Miami Herald. So I wonder, how have you been become a specialist in this area for your local audience? And how do you use data to understand those hurricane models you've written about?
1: Sure. So yeah, hurricanes are a huge issue for us. They are um, a common unifier for folks who may not uh, feel very strongly about the impact of climate change in their life. You can guarantee that anyone who lives in Miami understands the risks they face with hurricanes and wants to know the most updated information they can get. So we spend a lot of time um, both you know, doing the day-to-day updates when a storm is coming, but also when one isn't imminent, doing step backs and talking about Um, how effective the latest models we use are, how effective the protections that the county or the cities are looking into are, and and how that risk is being shaped by the warming world. So a lot of deep dives into the science of how climate change affects hurricanes or, or makes certain aspects more likely, like stronger hurricanes or wetter hurricanes um, and actually surprisingly changes them in ways you wouldn't expect, like the fact that as the world gets warmer, we may see fewer hurricanes. Um, So I use a lot of data in talking about risk. So we look at mapping for flood. We look at uh, age and distribution of buildings so we can see which is the old housing stock and which is the new housing stock, which is built to a slightly higher level Um, and therefore might be more able to uh, withstand a storm. Um, So we we do a lot of that to try to highlight in our stories what the risk is and who is facing the most of it. So for instance, when Hurricane Ian was coming, we did a lot of mapping and data journalism on the impact of storm surge, which is record high for us um, on the west coast of Florida. When that hurricane came slamming in last year, we saw up to 20 feet and we were able to look at the maps and see where, more would be expected and how that would affect some of the buildings there. So yeah, data is a really important part of the conversation when we talk about hurricanes and the risk we all face.
0: Absolutely. And um, Tamid, um, as the Bangladesh correspondent for Thomson Reuters, um, tell us what climate challenges locals are facing in Dhaka and Bangladesh and, and how it impacts their daily lives.
2: Uh, Yeah, so as you know that Bangladesh is one of the most climate vulnerable countries and it's also a developing country with limited resources. So it means that it has limited uh, capacity to actually address the climate challenges that it is facing. So if you look at the main climate challenges, the most recent and most visible one, it is like the Heat waves the recent heat waves that have actually affected I mean uh, the greater part of the world but it has also become uh, quite worse in Bangladesh in Dhaka as well. Uh, as, you, as you have uh, as you may know that uh, Dhaka is a big metropolis with almost like 15 to 20 million people and most of these people are living in informal settlements like uh, tin shed houses and so on which do not have proper cooling uh, systems. And many of these people also work outside during daytime when there is, uh, you know, very warm sunshine and so on. Uh, Given the kind of uh, building, built environment in Dhaka, these people actually, uh, you know, they face uh, quite severe issues related to heat trapping and the heat island effect. So these are some of the main challenges that uh, the inhabitants of Dhaka are facing uh, due to the, uh, you know, the heat wave problem of recent times. And uh, there are also several structural uh, problems that make it worse, like, for example, the lack of availability of cool water, drinking water, and so on. Also, the issue of availability of healthcare services. So it actually shows how the limited resources and the pre-existing development pattern of a city like Dhaka can actually hamper uh, and actually make it worse when there is a climate hazard, such as Heat waves. And then there are also uh, more longer term issues that you are all familiar with, like, for example, uh, you know, uh, seasonal cyclones, the longer term uh, uh, salinity issue in the coastal area and the uh, floods in the northern region, and things like that. So, when it comes to using data for uh, uh, reporting on issues like these, for example, when you report on heat waves, uh, if you actually want to see what kind of areas in Dhaka are more affected by heat waves, how the uh, you know the built environment, the urban pattern, how these are actually making uh, heat waves worse, we can actually use the uh, the satellite maps, the the various kinds of maps, and see what kind of built environments are in different neighborhoods of Dhaka. What are the main green spaces within Dhaka? Where these green spaces are actually uh, you know, distributed. Like, for example, in our report, we have shown how most of the green spaces and also the water bodies, these were often concentrated in more upscale neighborhoods, like for example, the richer neighborhoods. Whereas the in the uh, Islam regions, or for example, uh, areas where the poorer people lived, there were less green spaces. So it also actually highlighted our just transition angle. Like, for example, uh, when there is a climate hazard, how it actually uh, affects people uneven in an uneven manner. So you see that data data can actually help us explore also these dimensions, these these dimensions which are not really visible uh, when we look at from a more macro level angle. So yeah, we are using data uh, quite uh, substantively when it comes to reporting on issues like heat waves or cyclone and things like that. And I wonder
0: if solutions journalism is something that you're also using, like, and to, to help build trust with your audiences.
2: Uh, yeah, so solutions journalism is something that we are increasingly, uh, you know, concentrating on because uh, without solutions journalism, it becomes merely a series of, uh, you know, doom and gloom stories and. Which actually induces despair and negativity in people. Uh, like, I mean, they feel that they lack a sense of agency. So, when it, so obviously, when it comes to uh, reporting on issues like whether it comes to salinity, whether it comes to heat waves, we we actually do try to, uh, you know, point out the solutions that are emerging. So, our main approach is to uh, identify what are the one two solutions uh, are actually emerging like for example, at very local levels. Sometimes even local people, they actually come up with uh, solutions. They actually uh, make little innovations, uh, whether it, it's, it's rooftop gardening, whether it's, you know, sometimes people, uh, activists themselves can try to create green spaces within urban, urban uh, abandoned urban uh, areas. So uh, small steps that actually uh, make changes these changes may not be very much, uh, you know, universal change or these may not impact uh, a large number of people. But if you actually point out the changes, then probably government, development organizations and financial organizations, they can actually pick that up and they can actually dedicate their resources to the areas and to the solutions or models that actually work so that eventually it can be scaled up. So, yeah, the, uh, solutions journalism is something that we are picking up more and more. And I wonder um,
0: from a daily perspective, um, for instance, Alex, are there any, you know, go-to sources that you regularly monitor locally or nationally to sort of find stories for your beat of climate change for the Miami Herald? Sure. So I'll, I'll start local and go big. Um, we have NOAA, which is
1: our National uh, Oceanography and Atmospheric Association that um, tells us all sorts of stuff. We have um, tidal gauges all up and down the coast that you can look at and kind of be able to use to both assume when flooding, like their predictions of when we might see flooding, but also historical data of of how bad it's been in the past and if this is gonna potentially rival that. They also let us know when things like king tides are coming, which are the highest annual tides of the year, which um, like Janet was talking about, do lead to some flooding, although yours is far more severe um, in our streets. And then also I look at heat data from the National Weather Service that we can, again, predict going forward, historical looking back. Um, But, and also nationally, I like to use the Environmental Protection Agency's flight tool, which allows us to look at the greenhouse gas emissions um, from historic and projected forward for all sorts of different buildings. So we look at, you know, power plants, cement factories, landfills. And you can pretty easily look at that and, and drill down and say, oh, this is the biggest polluter in our, our area. Maybe I could call them and ask what they're doing to fix it. Or maybe I could talk to the um, local government officials and ask what they're doing about it or ask who this is harming. Um, and then internationally, I really like the uh, all the different measurements of global heat. Obviously, we've broken quite a few global heat records in the last couple of weeks. And I know the Um, ERA-5 is sort of the global weather model. I believe it's from Japan um, that has been tracking global temperatures. And so we're able to look at that and say, oh my gosh, we've broken another record. Uh, July 3rd was the hottest day on the entire globe in recorded history. And then July 4th broke that record. And I believe July 5th broke that record. Um, So these giant global measuring systems and sort of recording and data repositories are really helpful when you're trying to put the local effects in context. And um, I don't really write about sea ice because that's kind of far away from my Caribbean audience, but um, you can also use some of these global mapping to like look and see, oh, well, it's it's hottest year ever. What's causing it? Well, it's the Southern hemisphere is hotter than it should be this time of year. And sea ice in the Southern hemisphere is at the record lows. And you can sort of use these um, data points, which are, you know, as big as they could be, they cover the entire globe and then shrink back local and say, okay, well, what does that mean for us? So last week we did a piece talking about, you know, here are these global heat records we've broken. How does South Florida experience that? How does Miami experience heat? And it's different than the rest of the world. Um, Tamid also has a, they, in Bangladesh, they also have a chief heat officer, which we have too. And, but obviously the way that these two areas experience heat is different. Um, Bangladesh has heat waves, we just sort of have a chronic heat that lasts a long time, most of the year. And so I think what really helps make stories local is when you differentiate and you say, okay, this is what we experience. It's not the same as everybody else. And therefore our solutions and our preparations are going to have to be different from everyone else. It's great to know what everyone else in the world is doing because you can crib and say, I want to use your solution here, um, but not every solution works for every area. And that's where I think local climate journalism comes in. It's such an important part of the conversation.
0: Absolutely. And that's really interesting that you're kind of moder- you're monitoring really the global and the local and then cherry picking the stuff that w- works that applies to what your audi- what works for your audience. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's all part of the conversation of
1: um, what do people respond to because it's hard to get people to engage sometimes on climate mm-hmm.
2: stuff in Miami.
0: Yeah, and speaking of Bangladesh, um, to me, what what are some of your go to sources?
2: Yeah, so basically, I mean, I mean, obviously, for the international uh, uh, focus, we basically uh, rely on the, I mean, the sources that I mean, other journalists from from across the world also rely on. For the national level, the issue is a little bit more complicated because in Bangladesh, I mean, we do not readily get all the kind of data that we may need. For example, when we, for example, want to uh, report on uh, heat waves, then, for example, we do not have, uh, you know, uh, aggregate data on the kind of impact it has on people's health. Or, for example, the government does not have the data on which neighborhoods are having most of the... Heat island effect, or I mean, the highest level of uh, additional heat. So that is a little bit complicated. So we sometimes have to, uh, you know, reach out to researchers who may have written paper on heat waves, or sometimes we reach out to international sources. So, yeah, I mean, uh, in Bangladesh, we do not readily have all these data uh, gathered at the, for example, the National Meteorological Organization or the National health organization, they do not really have these data ready made at their hand. So we, we have to, uh, you know, uh, keep a regular connection with think tanks, the think tanks that actually work on climate change and health and labor issues and also development organizations. So these are mainly the kind of sources that we have to reach out for getting our data.
0: So in the United States, though, it seems like things are still quite political on this front, um, Alex. And there's still a lot of climate denial going on. And so I wonder if that's something that you're finding in Miami or is it, maybe that's not the case locally because people are dealing with hurricanes every season or, or more, right? Yeah, I'd say the
1: conversation about whether there are deniers who understand and accept the science of climate change is actually kind of a tough one in Miami because nobody can deny that it is hot Nobody can deny that the streets are flooding on completely sunny days. No one can deny that the hurricanes are bad. Um, So the conversation has really it's a little different. I I don't get that many emails from locals or or comments or responses who outright deny climate change. Lots of folks um, at this point admit that it's happening. Uh, the kind of the the new goalpost is whether or not it's human caused, which obviously it is. But um, a lot of folks down here do sort of balk at that. And so we do see an interesting split, which is that Florida is very, very, very affected by the risks of climate change. We are one of the first in line in the United States for heat risks, for flood risks, uh, for the amount of property value at risk along the coasts, And you see more than a billion dollars poured into fixing that. Uh, from the state, which is a conservative Republican government for us, but they're only addressing half the problem. That billion dollars is for adaptation; it's for elevating buildings, it's for installing um, better stormwater pumps, bigger pipes to flush that water away from areas we will live and shoot it into the ocean. Um, so it's very reactive. It's, it's how do we handle the symptoms of climate change? But when you come to the conversation about the cause of climate change, that's uh, it's crickets in Florida. We we really. Are not as a state or, or barely as a local government or barely in Miami addressing our actual carbon footprint. We're not talking about switching away from fossil fuels. We're not talking about getting folks into public transit, into electric vehicles, and off out of uh, gas powered cars. That's sort of where the line has drawn in Florida, which is that people are not afraid to have conversations about what they're seeing in front of their face, like the fact that the streets are flooded and you can't get a garbage truck to come to your house or you can't take your kids to school, but they are unwilling to talk about the fact that we are contributing to that at a rapid pace and that we need to stop immediately or things will get worse.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when I was living in New York and Hurricane Sandy happened and I was a reporter with the Huffington Post, that felt like a moment where New Yorkers suddenly realized climate change wasn't just some distant thing and and you know that it, it finally affected them in a really severe way and it made people sort of sit up and rethink things. Um and yeah, I maybe in Bangladesh though, people are dealing with this every day in their lives. So it's not that that denial is not really in, in countries where they're going underwater, right?
2: Tavid. Uh, yeah, I mean, climate change, I mean, people are quite familiar with the uh, impact of climate change or the hazards that climate change brings to their life. But climate change as an idea, as an abstract idea, I mean, people, the ordinary people, they are not quite familiar with that. So it's not a question of denial versus acceptance about the reality of climate change, but more like... Uh, they actually cannot link it back to the global uh, development model, the kind of fossil fuel-based development that is happening in the world. So, uh, you know, the parameters of the discussion are different. So the role of the media is actually to uh, show what kind of connections are there between the uh, global development, uh, carbon-based development, fossil fuel, and things like that with the kind of uh, disasters and hazards that are happening. And uh, sometimes, for example, uh, I mean, there are also people who believe that These disasters, uh, they they may be like curses on them for, uh, you know, sinfulness of people and things like that. So there are also cultural beliefs. So it's quite important to actually, uh, you know, show the kind of connections that exist between the kind of disasters that are happening and uh, the fossil fuel based development model. So, yeah, that's the kind of uh, discussion that's happening here.
0: Yeah. And I presume that data journalism is something that's really important for all of you because it allows you to sort of hone in on the local story, but also maybe show the data, which backs it up a bit, and also just add some credibility and transparency to your reporting. Um, I don't know. I know we talked a little bit about solutions journalism already, but um, I just wonder um, if you could talk about how you can integrate the lived experience into the story using data and showing that local story, so to speak. I can jump
1: in with a very recent example. So we had a story run a couple of weeks ago um, on extreme heat and who it affects. And so the piece was about, um, you know, it was solutions oriented. What? How do we fix this? How do we keep people safe as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter outside? And it was focused on outdoor workers. Um, so Miami-Dade County, uh, which is the home of the city of Miami, has more outdoor workers than any other spot in the state of Florida. And yet we have no protections for outside. There is no mandatory water, rest, or shade for any outdoor workers. Some states have it, mostly on the West Coast. Uh, some counties and some cities have it in other parts of the country. But nobody in Florida does. And Miami-Dade doesn't, um, which is rough. because very, very hot out here. And we hear stories all the time of people who are unable to handle that heat, um, who, you know, get sick or even die uh, because of this extreme heat. So the piece was about efforts at the federal, state and local level to push forward new legislation that would mandate those protections and, and, you know, keep workers safe beyond just the whims of their bosses. And to ground that, we spent a lot of time down in South Day talking to farm workers. We talked to farm workers. We talked to the street vendors. We talked to gardeners, roofers, lots lot of boat guides, all sorts of folks all around the county who work outside in the hot sun. And we talked about their experiences. and We, we interviewed them. We had portraits of them. We talked about you know, what the heat means for them. We called it the faces of extreme heat. Um, and we really grounded that coverage, which otherwise could be kind of airy and big. And, oh, maybe this one day we could do these solutions by saying, here are the people that it would help immediately and had in their own voices, why they think it's important and why they want it, which I think made the piece really powerful. And it was well read and, and definitely sparked a conversation in Miami-Dade Press.
0: Absolutely. And I wonder if, to me, do you want to jump in here?
2: Uh, yeah, so I I want to uh, I mean uh, you know go to another area which is basically uh, I mean more central to my coverage which is uh, for example uh, the issue of just transition uh, and one of the main focus of just transition is on uh, labor for example uh, how the la- labor labor force the ordinary workers of Bangladesh how they are actually affected by uh, climate change so for example uh, a few months back I made a report on. How, for example, uh, the greening of Bangladeshi uh, government uh, sector, how it also relates to climate change and how it can actually offer uh, better uh, working conditions and wages to the workers. So what tra- climate transition by uh, the global apparel industry means for the ordinary workers. So mm-hmm. I, I actually, uh, you know, analyzed the relevant data, showed what kind of uh, uh, greening has happened. What are the uh, broader parameters and ambitions of the uh, global big brands? So that kind of macro picture was there that I based, based on the available data. But then I also talked to very ordinary workers, common workers from Bangladeshi garment sector. And I actually try. I actually uh, eventually found that many of these workers themselves are actually climate migrants who have come from, you know, uh, climate affected areas, leaving their families back in the, climate-affected areas, including their, sometimes their children or or their parents and so on. And they, they have come to the uh, urban areas in search of jobs and many of them actually found jobs in the fashion industry because that is the biggest industrial employer in Bangladesh and one of them, I mean, the main source of uh, foreign currency for Bangladesh. So what I was trying, what I actually uh, eventually achieved showing is that the uh, you know, transition in the fashion industry can actually help these workers better adapt to the impact of climate change. And by interviewing very ordinary workers who are very much vulnerable to the climate change and its various impacts, not only in their rural homes, but also in urban areas, I mean, even when they have uh, migrated to urban areas and have taken up jobs in the fashion industry, they are still not immune to the impacts of climate change, for example, when there is a rain, like irregular rainfall patterns, then these urban areas often get inundated and these workers actually, you know, bear the brunt of it. So by interviewing these workers and presenting their stories, we have tried to show, I mean, the kind of impact that actually visit upon their lives every day. So yeah, that's how we try to link the bigger picture of climate change or global transition towards low carbon development with the very, uh, you know, very uh, normal lives, ordinary uh, lives of these common people, like workers.
0: That's such an interesting story. Um, And I mean, news avoidance is also something that comes up a lot when I talk to editors about their coverage on climate change and how They're trying to, like, tackle news avoidance among audiences, local audiences especially. And I wonder, um, you know, what your experience has been, Alex, uh, with that. Yeah,
1: it's hard to get people to read stories about big, scary things. Um, You know, people only have a tolerance for so much bad news in their life. And I think that's why the conversation today with all of us has, has been focused on solutions journalism but you can't, every story can't be solutions journalism. Um, you, you do sometimes have to tell the reality, which is that things are bad and nobody's doing anything to fix them, which can be a bit of a bummer. And it's hard to get people to read those stories. Um, so I've been experimenting for years on trying to find what kinds of topics people will engage with. And yes, solution stories are great and they will usually engage with those. Um, but we find that topics like healthcare, um, Hurricanes and how things affect your wallet are sort of the way that people will engage. Like if we talk about climate change is a health threat and we, we ground that and here's how it really affects you today, people will engage with that. Um, if we talk about the way that climate change is making life more expensive for you, your city taxes are going up, your property insurance rates are exploding, um, your home value could be declining because of the flood risk. If we focus on wallet and pocketbook issues, people do engage with those. Um, But, you know, sometimes I think we just go in waves. The last couple of weeks have been filled with a lot of very bad news for Florida. We've got home insurers dropping out of the market. We've got global heat records being broken. We've got um, outdoor workers dying in the heat. Um, It's just been a series of very bad headlines. And I genuinely expect the next couple of weeks we'll see a pullback from readers who are overwhelmed, as I feel like makes sense to be based on all those bad news. So I think our strategy usually is, after a a series of scary headlines, we try to put our heads together and think, okay, how can we tell, like, what's a hopeful story we can tell? Is there like an activist doing something wonderful that we can just zoom in on or or think about a building solution that is coming in online in our community? Um, So that's actually the conversation we're having today, which is that the last two weeks has been a lot of gloomy and doomy uh, sort of headlines. And then we've got to really come back and think about how to draw people in with you know, appeal to the wonder and the awe sometimes, which is, you know, how are these technological solutions or scientific solutions coming online? Um, so that's definitely, it's a hard task, but it's one that we're,
0: we're definitely trying to do every day and especially this week. Yeah. It's about balancing that, isn't it? But at the same time, like you said, you have to tell what is actually happening. Um, so I, I, the struggle is real and to me I mean I know Thompson Reuters has developed the context uh, if you want to talk a little bit about how you guys have adapted your actual product to fit this issue? Uh,
2: yeah so basically uh, in the in the context we have basically uh, tried to uh, integrate data more uh, closely in our stories uh, if you look at the stories you can show you can see that Uh, We we have been trying to, you know, use more data and, you know, graphs, interactives and uh, things like that, infographics, in our stories very closely and, uh, you know, present the story in a more attractive way. Uh, You know, uh, for example, uh, we provide a very uh, brief teaser at the very uh, start of the story so that people can get a sense of what uh, the basic message is and we also provide three to four bullet points where we actually show what the main message they can get from this story and then we also present them with uh, you know various kind of uh, uh, infographs and things like that but obviously i mean when it comes to presenting data it's not always, uh, you know, uh, most useful to present them in graphs or charts or things like that. For example, if you talk about Bangladeshi audience, many of them may not be very much literate uh, in terms of visually reading these uh, graphs and charts. So uh, for, I, I sometimes think that it's, it's often uh, useful to actually uh, present uh, basic, uh, uh, you know, uh, inferences in our narratives. So, yeah, it's a mix. It's a mix when it comes to presenting data to our audience.
0: And Tamid, I wonder is news avoidance something that you're also concerned about when you're writing? I know you write, you're covering Bangladesh in general. It's not, but climate change obviously features a huge amount in your work.
2: Yeah, I mean, just as Alex said, that uh, people in Bangladesh. People may not be very much interested or curious about climate change because it's too abstract an issue for them to actually uh, think about. But people are quite interested when it comes to, for example, uh, the garment sector, or the fashion industry. People are interested about power sector. For example, we have been having power outage for months during the summer season due to various reasons among which climate change and fossil fuel dependence is one. And people are also interested generally uh, in economic development, uh, the establishment of industries and economic zones, things like that. Or, for example, uh, you know the you know the rivers and biodiversity, uh, things like that. So the issue is that uh, we have we have to actually engage with all these issues, which which actually have uh, been affected by climate change. So the entry points for people people's interest are often very diverse issues but our reports if you if you look at the, our reports you can see that how we have actually tried to uh, link all these issues into climate change to see what kind of impacts this uh, for, uh, sector is having on climate change or how uh, people's lives are being affected. For example uh, in different parts of Bangladesh uh, people have different kind of uh, for example housing patterns. And these housing patterns have evolved over the years, uh, due to, uh, in line with the kind of climate or uh, you know the landforms and so on, the local uh, local landform patterns and things like that. But due to climate change and associated hazards, people are actually adapting their uh, housing patterns. Uh, like uh, for example, when a place experiences more floods people cannot just uh, build their homes in the way they have been building for generations they actually have to adapt these so that was like one uh, one example you know one of our reports we actually reported on this that how uh, people from different parts of bangladesh they have adapted their housing patterns or the kind of homes that they are building so that that uh, story actually drew quite a lot of interest from people so I mean, although uh, the link with climate change may not be very readily apparent to them. So, yeah, that's the kind of way we actually uh, link our stories with climate change.
0: And I wonder um, if any of you find that weaving scientific data into the narratives of what you're writing about kind of strengthens your relationship with your audience. Does it build more trust? Is that something that you're seeing or is it? It's just something that you're doing anyway to to strengthen the story.
2: Uh, So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that in our stories, we try to uh, bring a mix of uh, perspectives of scientists, as well as practitioners and administrators and people on the ground. Because uh, in many countries, in uh, countries like Bangladesh, as well as many developing countries, you may sometimes see a disconnect between the scientists and experts and the administrators and the common people. Uh, there is in fact uh, even uh, what we call uh, industry academia disconnect. So the academics and the experts and scientists, they produce evidence but the policymakers may not uh, sometimes take this up. or the policymakers may add up policies without actually consulting the scientists. And the ordinary people, they often feel that their own lived experience is not being, I mean, reflected in the policies or the science research studies. So, I mean, uh, in our stories, uh, I think that it's very important that we actually weave together all uh, all these kinds of perspectives, which may not, uh, I mean, the stakeholders or the actors, they may not talk to each other all, all times. So. In our stories, we have to bring a mix of all these perspectives together. And obviously, yeah, scientific uh, research studies, evidence, and viewpoints—these are obviously very much uh, important. These add credibility. And our stories, when we when we write a story, we have various different audiences, and these different audiences look for different kind of uh, different kind of uh, you know core uh, values. For example, a policymaker, they may look for very concrete policy suggestions, whereas an expert, they may look for uh, if the inferences that are drawn in this story, whether these are actually backed by solid evidence, which a policymaker in, uh, in many developing countries may not be very much interested in. Or the ordinary people, they may actually look for whether these stories are reflecting their very much lived experience, the kind of heat that they are feeling on their skin. So we have to actually, uh, you know, bring all these layers in a multi-layered narrative to create our credibility.
1: Yeah, just to jump on what Tami just said, plus one to all of that, which is, um, I, I definitely try to put as much data and science backing into my stories as possible, but I think it's most effective when you are using it to counteract points that maybe politicians are making, like you just said. You have politicians advocating for one sort of policy or legislation, like, oh, we need to do this. Okay, well, what does the science actually say? And does it back you up? Does it completely contradict you? Most of the time it contradicts them. But I also have found that sometimes you can come up with interesting stories about how the science doesn't even back up things that activists are asking for. Like we've had a back and forth in Miami recently about the role of mangroves versus seawalls. When we're talking about armoring the coast, Um, you'll hear, you know, Government officials say, yep, we want a 20-foot tall seawall. That's the best way to do it. And you'll hear activists say, no, 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 we want natural solutions. We want mangroves. And we think we can do like, you know, 50 mangroves. We'll totally protect our coast the same as 20-foot wall. Well, the science doesn't back that up, um, but it does inform the conversation. And so, you know, the the use of science and data to either contradict or back up policies is not limited to just something the government supports. It can be limited to some, it can also focus on something that the community supports, but I also totally agree with to me that we need to start using the you know, regular folks, the lived experience of people in our communities. That can be, in many cases, just as valuable as talking to some academic who's been studying this issue for a hundred years, because the folks that we are talking to in these stories are the ones who are actually experiencing it every single day, and their lived experience is a super valuable thing that we should have in all of our narratives. So. Yeah, backing things up with science as much as I possibly can without weighing down the piece, but it can be used in a lot of different ways. And it's it's been kind of interesting to see, you know, where people fall on the line to that.
0: Absolutely. And I just wonder, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've all seen when covering climate issues in a local context? Like, how do you make sure that people feel connected to the story or you follow up with them or if you do collect data or, or you're doing something that is within the community that you share it back with them? Like, do you put surveys at the bottom of your stories? Do, do you just stay in touch with people after? Yeah. So
1: audience engagement is something we're always trying to work on. I, we've done it in a lot of different ways. We're still trying to figure out what works best. Um, we started out like we've done community town halls where physically people in person would come and we would all have a couple speakers and take questions and Um, you know, talk in front of a live audience about these issues, which has been fun. We did that in coordination with the radio station. Um, But obviously, COVID sort of put a damper on some of those in-person stuff. And we've switched mostly to we have a newsletter that we send out every week that we try to keep in touch with folks. um, And we do call outs in that newsletter. So the one we just sent out yesterday involved asking readers to share their power bills with us so we can do an investigation onto how Um, The rising temperature is affecting everyone's power bills and sort of hopefully look forward to see what that might do in the future because the power utilities don't want to share that information with us. So we are crowdsourcing it with readers. And this is something we hear from them a lot about. So I feel like this will be a good topic. Um, And the other thing we do is some members of our community started a WhatsApp group um, about climate issues. And it's grown to be a couple hundred people, sort of like the hardcore climate folks in Miami. And uh, we share a lot of stories in there. We talk about things. We do Q and A's on our work. Um, we do Reddit I- AMAs. We do as much as we can right now to try to reach out to folks. Um, we have a dedicated Instagram. We're trying the social media aspect, but I will say over and over again, the best way I've ever connected with readers is in person. So you show up to their community meetings. You show up to um, you know neighborhood potlucks and barbecues and just talk to people about what they're experiencing. And we're definitely trying to get back to doing more of that. And and roping people into the conversation and making sure our stories are not just stuff that we think is interesting, but stuff that the community wants answers on or is very worried
0: about. And you're right. Face-to-face is probably the best way uh, to to connect with people. What about you, Tamid?
2: Yeah. So basically, uh, in our just transition coverage, we basically cover a range of uh, sectors. So for these different sectors, we actually have to uh, uh, cover different kinds of social groups. And for them, we actually have a different kind of uh, engagement uh, strategies. Uh, not that there are like very uh, structured strategies, but we have to have an like, uh, open uh, way of engaging with people. For example, when it comes to workers, uh, when we uh, develop stories, we, we build rapports with them. We Sometimes they, they have their own groups. Uh, uh where they interact and we sometimes get a part of that uh, so that uh when they face any issue after we have uh, done a story uh, i mean on their work life or workplace safety or things like that they can actually reach out to us and share their story and if we if we think that there is uh, an angle for a story we can plan for that so yeah for them we we actually uh, keep in touch uh, for example, when there is a festival, like, for example, the Eid Festival, we send them greetings and they can actually get in touch with us back. And so things like that. And sometimes uh, when you visit uh, areas where there are these industries, I can actually interact with them to actually, uh, you know, uh, keep the rapport alive. Uh, apart from that, we also have to interact with a lot of scientists, uh, professionals, and also uh, government officials, policymakers who actually uh, make the policies or write the studies that actually uh, provide a lot of our content. Uh, so we, we follow them in the social media and all these social media in Bangladesh have different uh, dynamics. For example, uh, Facebook is the most, uh, I mean, most popular social media where people of all different kind of uh, groups, they actually uh, uh, are present in Facebook in various uh, ways. So, uh, rather than Twitter, for example, Twitter is more popular in India and other countries. So we we actually uh, try to interact with people on Facebook. Uh, that's one area, and then LinkedIn is also uh, becoming more and more popular, especially for professional purposes. So uh, if I mean LinkedIn, LinkedIn is now a very good medium for actually keeping in touch with people. Uh, so yeah, I mean these are some of the ways that I keep in touch with uh, people that I work with.
0: Well, listen, guys, we're almost done. I just want to um, have a final question, getting your advice on, you know, basically, what, what's your top advice for local journalists who are new to covering climate change? Like, how do they engage with audiences and, and you know, how do they cultivate those sources and connect with the community? What, where, where do they start? I think the most important thing to know if you were going to start
1: covering climate change in a local area, you don't have to be an expert on climate change. Don't let anyone tell you you have to be. What you do is you find what makes your community unique. Are you the garment industry? Are you raising horses? Does everybody love a specific football team? Does everybody love to go kayaking or swimming in this certain place? Find something that holds local significance and then ask how climate change affects it. Uh, Go deep and say, how does this affect it? what solutions are in play and you immediately have a recipe for a story that people care about that you can learn a lot of things about your community and how climate change uniquely affects it based on focusing on the things people care deeply about so i think that's the best way to just hit the ground running when you start covering this topic brilliant tamid
2: uh yeah so uh, my advice is actually uh, to try to build a network of climate communicators. So for example, uh, there are uh, climate communicators in different kinds of groups and institutions. For example, uh, policymakers, development uh, community, academics, media, and so on. And in Bangladesh, actually, we're trying to develop develop such networks uh, of climate communicators so that uh, any issue that actually needs urgent attention of the media, and also that uh, actual people who work on this this can actually make the rounds very quickly. So I think that in any developing country where uh, people are working on climate change or working in in that kind of journalism, they should actually try to cultivate that kind of network.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you for coming on Conversations with Data. It was absolute pleasure hearing your insights on this really important topic of local climate journalism. And um, yeah, let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. Great
2: to meet you. you. Thank you so much, Tara, and thank you so much, Alex, for uh, this discussion. It was really, very enriching.
0: A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. Conversations with Data podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com, powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.